From the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio, this is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to Season 3 of our podcast. We are so glad you could join us. This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics. Today, we welcome conductor Tiffany Chang to our podcast. Originally trained in the world of music education, Chang holds positions at both Oberlin Conservatory and Berklee College of Music, and previously served as interim director of orchestras at Baldwin Wallace Conservatory and Boston University. Lately, her focus has been geared more toward the professional realm, particularly in the world of opera, where she serves as director of the North End Music and Performing Arts Center's Opera Project in Boston and has major engagements this season with Opera Columbus here in Ohio, as well as the Portland Opera in Oregon. She also runs the blog Conductor as CEO, which examines job satisfaction issues in the orchestral industry and the role of the conductor in creating a healthy workplace culture. Tiffany Chang, welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thank you, Matthew and Rachel. It is a pleasure to be here, and I'm so excited for this conversation. Yeah, this is, it's very exciting. Um, I know you a little bit. I've been able to, he mentioned Baldwin Wallace Conservatory. I was there uh, when you were conducting. You actually taught me how to conduct. I don't know if I remember much, but <laughs> I did learn from you. Uh, but we would love to learn a little more about you. So if you wouldn't mind telling us just a little bit about yourself and your childhood and how music kind of inspired you as a kid and how it played a part in your life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I um, have always played music since I was young, but never very seriously. So I started on the piano when I was maybe like five or six. And my major instrument is actually the cello. And I didn't pick that up until actually middle school, which is actually rather late for a string player. Um, and, you know, as I said, I, I played music, but I was never very serious. I never really considered it as a career path until actually fairly late in my uh, high school years. Um, and it was a summer at the um, Tanglewood Music Institute um, in the, uh, the, the Boston University Tanglewood Institute, which I attended as a high school uh, cellist, that really made me think that music and inspiring people through music was a path for me. And I, uh, yeah, and I, I made that distinction, that realization fairly late. So I wasn't, I wasn't preparing for auditions. I wasn't thinking about music school, none of that. So I think that the path that my, the, my musical path came about as a matter of circumstance. So 
And I think that my entire career has unfolded as a matter of circumstance. So um, I really believe that things happen for a reason. And, you know, I'm here for a reason. I've done the things that I've done and I will do the things that I will do for a reason. And um, that is kind of how music intertwined with yeah. my like my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can totally relate to this <laughs> because I am a conductor as well. And when I left high school, I figured I was going to become an engineer or a PhD scientist or something like that. And so like you, I wasn't preparing for auditions or anything. I didn't take any auditions as an undergraduate. And I uh, went to school and fell in love with conducting on a sheer accident, essentially. And many years later, here we are. So yeah, I can totally relate. Mm. So you originally pursued music education uh, at the undergraduate and master's level, I believe, but then uh, you got your DMA in conducting a, a, as a performer. What led you to transition sort of from the music education path to the performance conducting path? Yeah, that's a great question because I think my path to conducting is not a straight shot. Um, and I went to school for music education my undergrad was in music education and cello performance. Mm -hmm. And I had always thought that I wanted to teach music. And it, you know, I wasn't sure in which context I wanna teach music. I didn't know where my career would necessarily fall, but I was always interested in inspiring people with how I taught or how I interacted or how I performed. And also in my undergrad, I, I had the opportunity to study other areas that I was really interested in. So for example, I um, pursued a minor in composition and a minor in music theory. So I was doing a lot of things <laughs> and, and I realized that I liked doing all of those things. Like I really liked studying scores and like, you know, to use like an engineer uh, analogy, like I love reverse engineering a score like I love looking at it and ask questions of why why did the composer do do this why didn't they do that <laughs> instead and so I was really interested in composition I was really interested in studying and analysis which brought me to music theory and I was really interested in performance as a cellist and I was really interested in teaching slash inspiring so I kind of fell into conducting as the thing that allowed me to do all of those things it allowed me to study it allowed me to um to be a nerd and it allowed me to inspire, it allowed, it allowed me to perform, and it allowed me to teach in one form or another. So, and, and as I delve more into conducting, I realized that I enjoy the challenge of being a leader, of making an impact. By the yeah. way, really quickly, I can relate to all yeah. of your reasons for <laughs> becoming a conductor. I feel the same way. Yeah. I love nerding out, just <laughs> opening a score and see how it's put together and inspiring the musicians and inspiring the audience. I just, I love every aspect of it and I'm so blessed to do it. Yeah. It's so interesting. I, listening to both of you talk about it, I was like, there's a lot of similarities here because uh, I've heard I, now both of you kind of talk about this um, and it's it's really interesting and you both have had interesting paths into conducting different than, you know, someone who you know, maybe in high school is like, I want to be a conductor. Um, and for you, Tiffany, it's, you're also in a field where there's not a lot of women 
at high levels of conducting. There's there's quite a few female conductors. They exist. There's a lot of them. But at the highest levels, when we look at our major orchestras, we just don't see that. Did that ever come into your mind as you made this switch to pursue it? Did it ever deter you? Um, does it still kind of play in your mind space today as you're pursuing this? That's a really interesting question because I think it's a question that plagues a lot of female conductors. Um, but honestly, the gender aspect never deterred me. Mm. Um, however, if you replaced a uh, female with academic in your question, mm. you know, and there are not that many academic conductors working at a high level in this industry, did that deter you when you, when oh. it, you know, and that the answer is a resounding yes and yes and yes and yes and yes and yes yes yes. I cannot say yes. I cannot say it as many. Uh, I cannot say it more times. Um, and that's I think something that I've continued to be frustrated with in the industry. Um, that because of my resume and my current uh, experience in my career, having been mostly in the academic world, that I I, I have I, I've been frustrated with how the industry generally associates my worth, my abilities, and my potential contribution based on my resume. Mm. And, and I think that, that there is a real stigma towards academic conductors um, at all levels, collegiate or, um, or secondary school or, you know, in, in public schools, who gets labeled and pigeonholed and, like, and, and othered within the profession. So that's kind of what I've had to deal with. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I remember this conversation in conservatory of some some people holding the opinion that those who were pursuing degrees in music education would not be as good at performance as those who were pursuing degrees in performance, um, and that was so false. Our first chair trumpet player, Cassidy. It was the best, and she's a music educator. Um, and I, I think that um, that's really interesting that you say that because I don't know. I would think that it takes a lot of talent and a lot of skill to be an academic conductor and to both teach and then produce a high quality product. Why do you? Th I'm wondering why you that may that stigma exists. Maybe. Yeah. Well, Rachel, you know, you're you're so right in mentioning that this stigma exists also in in the instrumental performance space as well because it is not just in within conducting you know and i i often forget that so thank you for bringing that up um i i don't i mean i have ideas about why this is because i can definitely understand their positions the you know the industry's position for thinking this way um because I think our first objective as people is to protect ourselves from danger and from risk. And we're, when we're in charge of quality of a product, um, there's a lot of safety in familiarity mm. and there's less risk when you use the person that everybody thinks is, or, or the society thinks has a good track record. And that's something that I think as a society in any industry, it's really hard to let go of. Mm. And, and we don't think about it enough to start to make change happen in that regard. And I'd, al I'd also go as far as saying that it is easier to stick to the status quo than it is to go against it because it's hard to go against the status quo. And so as a result, there's a bias that exists. 
and I think it, it, in, it, it exists in all branches of our industry and also in other industries too. Um, what's really interesting is that I've, I've heard from someone um, who's outside of the, of the music industry say that it's interesting that the academic professionals in the music industry are, um, are not seen to be as high performing as the professional professionals in the, in the industry, whereas in other industries, it's kind of the opposite. In that you know, if you are um, a professor at, at a uh, university, you are highly regarded, and um, and that's just it. And it's just interesting for me to hear that comment from someone who is not living in my world and don't don't and who doesn't see what I see, and and that makes me um, also just just think more about why you know why there's a stigma and how we can overcome it. Mm -hmm. And I think that the first problem is that there's no conversation about it. Mm -hmm. There's so much conversation about the, you know, the, the female, the woman conductors and supporting that group of people. And, and, um, and I haven't really heard anything about how do we support and level the playing field for the academic conductors mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm, you know, I've, I, I feel like that I am from a, I am from a camp that believes that excellent conducting is excellent conducting. And I feel like I believe that for a really long time. And um, maybe I'm stubborn to believe that because maybe the society is just not catching up to that um, as quickly as I want to. But I, you know, but I wonder if it's ever going to catch up. And, and, and how I can adjust the way that I think about my career and where I wanted to go, given what the reality is in the profession. Right. And, you know, I have heard from, I want to say at least from the start of grad school, if you go into academia, you'll never work in the profession again. I have heard that. I heard that from the get-go. And the, the profession has always been my goal. And so hearing this, your experience a little bit farther along in your track than I am right now, hearing your experience, it doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, I was wondering also something else that we've talked about a little bit that we've noticed is uh, the preponderance of foreign born conductors, specifically Europeans at the head of many major American orchestras. There are of the League of American Orchestras tier one budget level. There are only three Americans out of over 30 orchestras, and two of them had very, very famous fathers who sort of helped them get in the back door into the industry. So uh, what are your thoughts on this? And is this something that you see changing going forward? Yeah, um, I, I totally believe that's the statistic. And, you know, and I think that until we see those statistics on paper, we don't realize the extent in which it is so clear. Um, I do, you know, just having had um, seen uh, a similar um, paradigm play out in Asia, um, I'm from Taiwan, so I've seen the same kind of trend um, of local orchestras in Asia uh, wanting to hire foreign professionals because it, um, you know, for lack of a better way of describing it, looks better. Um, mm -hmm. It's more marketable. 
um, because it there's a there's a sense of um, there's a cosmetic um, reason I think for that I'm I'm not saying that, that that that's the reason why all organizations decide make those decisions, but I think that that there is a a sense of um, a sense of uh, pursuing perhaps a certain status from um, from involving uh, foreign artists generally, you know, and, and I mean, it, and, and I think it exists at a local level too. Like, you know, I have a lot of artist friends who often say like, you know, they live in Boston, but their work is never in Boston because other areas, other cities uh, want to hire people who are from other places in the country, you know, for, again, I, I, I can't articulate the reason, but I think there is some sort of status seeking story there um and and i i don't know if it's essentially a problem but i do think it's a phenomenon that's worth tracking and kind of seeing where it goes um i I, I, again i am you know i am i think naive and believing that you know the like excellent connecting is excellent connecting excellent performance is excellent performance so the people who deserve to be in certain places will fall into those places Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the world doesn't work that way all the time, but I like to believe that it does. So, um, so when, so I, I guess I'm not generally as inclined to think about what you're talking about here, Matthew, as a problem, but more as just like an observation that's interesting mm-hmm. to think about, and then to consider any uh, alternative options like like parallel universes like what if you know a hundred percent of those positions were filled by american connectors what would the landscape of of our of our field look like what would you know how would that uh how would that impact the art that we make or the trajectory that the orchestras are going in Lot, I think lot, lots of questions come out of your question rather than answers. For sure, for sure. Isn't that how it always is? <laughs> but I think yeah. it also goes back to some, what you were saying, that it's hard to change the status quo. And the, there have always been a preponderance of foreign-born conductors at the head of American orchestras. It's, it's what people are used to. It's, in some ways, it's what people have come to expect. So, yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah. So along those lines, uh, as you just mentioned, you are Taiwanese. How has that, if at all, affected your experience of your conducting career in the United States? Uh, honestly, I don't think that it has affected me that much because I consider myself equally an American and uh, from Ty- Taiwan. And I was born in Taiwan, and I spent the first seven years of my life in Taiwan, which is not a lot. Um, and I kind of moved back and forth a lot. And my immediately my immediate family is currently all in Taiwan, so I am actually proud of the country, its people, its culture, and its you know its innovation. It being like so far ahead of you know I, the U.S. for example in terms of its like technology and things like that. Um, but I, the U.S. is where I've gone to school and where I'm establishing my career. So I really feel equally at home in both places. I think what, um, what that duality allows me is, is a, a multicultural identity that allows me to be not one-dimensional. And it, it allows me to 
really identify with people in both countries immediately. Mm. Um, and I think that that's always a plus because people feel, you know, we gravitate towards the familiar and having identity with Taiwan and the, U the United States, it allows me to cast a wider net mm. uh, in reaching people and finding work, finding yeah. connections, yeah, all of that. Really quick follow-up to that. Uh, so you mentioned we, now several times we've talked about the gravitating towards the familiar. Mm. Uh, mm. Something we've talked about a lot on the first two seasons of this podcast is incorporating more music by composers that have historically been ignored in the programming of the orchestras around the country and around the world, namely uh, female composers and composers of color. And what is your take and what is your approach on incorporating this repertoire into the orchestral season in a way that audiences are gonna be like, okay, I'm gonna trust that this is gonna be a good concert and I'm gonna give this a try. Yeah, I think programming must be so strategic because it must balance the familiar, the familiar with the unfamiliar. And um, I don't, I think that when you strike that balance in terms of program order and um, the length of the works and how you market the concerts, you know, I think you can make something great out of any program as long as there's thought and purpose behind it. So I'm not so much advocating for just one composer or just one piece of music, but I'm advocating for more thought, more thoughtfulness in um, using programming as a way of exposing both, I think, the orchestral musicians and the audiences in a way that that really does not push people away because it's so unfamiliar, but at the same time doesn't just give them what they want, all of the familiar things. So it sounds like a cop-out of my response of like not really giving you an answer, but I think that is, that feels like the that feels like the most right answer for me because I don't want to single any particular composer or group of composers out because I think that it is up to, well, and also I'll, I'll add that um, as people, as artists, as musicians, we simply do not know what we don't know. So I, I can't always fault myself for not knowing XYZ composers because I just don't know them. But I can fault myself for not, trying to get to know them and I think that that mindset is really important mm -hmm. in it's not not just like oh well I have these five composers that are that check the boxes of female and people and um, people of color or whatever it is right or from this area of the world and that's what I'm going to stick with mm -hmm. like I think that's also not the best approach mm -hmm. either yeah I think so I think it's having yeah. yeah so I think it's having the empathy to realize that other people know more than you do and then seeking that information from yeah. other places. Yeah, I, I think that's a really great, I, I mean, I think that's an answer that should be put into more of what we just do in life. I think if we all approach the way we communicate with others and navigate our spaces with just more intentionality, we would find that we are able to be more empathetic, we are able to learn more quicker, we are able to understand each other better. But oftentimes I find that people lack the intentionality of getting to know something 
or really listening. I think that yeah. that that is probably, I mean, feels like the root of a lot of the issue is yeah. this lack of intentionality in a lot of things that we do as a society um, and really thinking things through before we say them or do them. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, if you just think about this conversation that we're having or any conversation that you're having with somebody else, right? We, tr we think that we're listening, but we're just hearing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you know and, and it's because, you know, it, silence is really awkward. And, and when you're hearing or when you're trying to come up with your response as the mm -hmm. other person is talking, mm -hmm. you are not really listening. Yeah. And that's something that I actually feel like that I have a long way to go in that. I always feel like I have to jump in and like respond right away. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, I am usually the teacher and I have to be in like the position of authority to put the person who knows the answers. And so like silence is challenging for me in terms of using it or allowing myself to use time after someone has asked me a question to just like, think about the question and not to think about it as the person is asking me the question. Uh -huh. I use this phrase, someone, I forget who told me this phrase, um, but it's this listening to understand, not listening to respond. Um, and yeah. I feel a lot of times we're listening to respond. All right, so um, we're about halfway through our conversation. I'm wondering, Tiffany, if you have any things that you would like to recommend to our listeners, um, books, music, activities, anything that you think um, our listeners should be doing right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll just share something that I'm currently doing now, which is I'm reading a, a book called The Heart of Business by Hubert Jolie. Um, he's a Frenchman um, businessman who uh, is recently uh, the CEO of Best Buy. And he was CEO, um, I think from like 2012 to uh, recently. Um, and he wrote this book called The Heart of Business. And it um, is, so just to give you some context, he. Um, Best Buy was, was not doing well when he came in and um, they were being threatened by other major companies like Amazon and, you know, online retail that were threatening them to go out of business. And he came in and turned things around and helped the organization thrive, overcoming those um, challenges. And, um, and it's just really inspiring to hear his story on how he made that happen. And he advocates, you know, interestingly for um, that companies have three imperatives and that the imperatives are people, business, and finance. And in that order, that excellence on the first, the people developing the, the fulfillment of the employees, the excellence on that is going to lead to excellent in business, which is loyal customers buying your products again and again, which is going to lead to excellence in finance, which is, you know, making money, right? And so that's his, um, that's, some, uh, that's an idea that he's presented that I feel like is really worth sharing because we often think that money is the goal, right? Or we want to make money as an organization, but, you know, he is talking about making money as an outcome and not the ultimate goal. And that the fulfillment and the development of its people in the organization is what comes first. And that's so counterintuitive because we think that the people work for us and we make money, right? And, and we think that we're serving them because we make money so that we could pay them. But actually, you know, 
um, there has been little, very little thought that goes into inspiring people and what, how the company can help them discover their purpose or um, help them achieve their dreams. And I think that's, you know, focusing on purpose and the people and the human relationships and not on the profit because the profit is a result of taking care of the people. I think that's something that we can really learn a lot from in our industry. That is a great, great segue yeah. to the next thing we wanted to talk about, which is indeed your blog, Conductor as CEO. You have identified that there is a widespread workplace dissatisfaction among musicians in the professional orchestra world. Uh, how were you, how did you initially identify this problem and uh, what inspired you to, to start your blog and what have you learned from it? Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to share. Um, you know, I don't think that I discovered the problem. The problem was there. Um, and it actually, um, I came across this study from the mid 1990s um, where they surveyed and uh, they, they surveyed job satisfaction rates in, across many industries. And uh, they uh, discovered, they ranked the job satisfaction rates and they discovered that orchestral musicians were pretty low on that ranking and that orchestral musicians were actually ranked lower than the job satisfaction of prison guards and of uh, flight attendants. Like flight attendants, it was like flight attendants, prison guards, and then orchestral musicians. Um, and I think that they were like, you know, uh, seven, eight, nine on a list of 12, you know? So it's like, it was interesting um, that that made me think about, okay, well that it was this, it was a problem 30 years ago and what, you know, and, and I, from my own experience, having conducted work, work, work with students, work, work, work with professionals, I can definitely see that that is still a problem because I think that we go into work, we think that um, we go into work because we love playing our instruments, but actually we go into work to make money. And, and I think that we can lose sight of why we were there in the first place. And, um, and so what I was most surprised about in this study um, is not like the actual statistic itself, because I kind of, you know, from, from my experience, I kind of, I could understand why, but I was so surprised at like what the recommendations were to help musicians improve their job satisfaction. So um, before I do that, I have to pre preface it by saying that this, um, a lot of times in all industries, the low job satisfaction um, is a result of three reasons. And the, the three reasons are um, no control over the work environment, like, you know, as musicians, we, 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 we don't have any control of where we rehearse, how long we rehearse, where we have our concerts, things like that. Uh, number two, that there's no autonomy in how we do the work. So uh, we don't have autonomy in the sense of, well, we have to play what's on the page, but beyond that, we do what a conductor says to do. So we don't really have a lot of choices, even though we are, we're artists. Uh, we don't have a lot of choices in the orchestral context. So we have no autonomy. And, and number three is that there's no ability to speak up, that we are, that there's a lot of fear within um, just whether we can play the right notes at the right times and the right dynamic and all of that, but also the fact that we are 
conflict averse. So we don't want to disagree with what the country is saying, or we don't want to disagree with a with a new policy. So we don't speak up because we are afraid, or we're you know, oh, because we're we are afraid. So there are these three um, reasons cite cited for. Uh, lack of job satisfaction, and so the arc, uh, the you know, the study basically was um, said that oh, you know, you don't have any control over the work environment. Well, go find a hobby where you can have control over your work environment, like I know, pick up gardening, um, or you know, oh, you don't have any autonomy over your work. Go take up another hobby like flying planes, flying planes, and uh, they actually said, well, this is why a lot of musicians become pilots is because they feel like they have autonomy over their work. So um, so I found that to be really interesting because it was not, it was, it was um, in a way treating the symptom and not the disease itself. Um, and it, this is 30 years ago. And I don't think that we have actually gone very far simply because we don't think of it as a problem. And so I became really interested in leadership ideas in the business industries because I'm a nerd and I like to read those things. And, um, and I realized that all of these people um, were talking about change and focusing on work culture, improving work culture in the workplace for the employees. They were talking about psychological safety. How do you allow people to feel like that they're trusted and that, that, that they are safe to speak up? Um, and how do we use purpose to infuse a sense of fulfillment in the work that we do. So people in other industries are talking about these things and have been for the last decade or so, and they've actually made strides, improvements in how they treat their employees, how they curate workplaces, how they infuse purpose. And I just feel like that we're really not doing so much of that in our industry and, and that I wanted to apply some of the ideas that I was learning in the other industries into my work as an artistic leader. I think from when I first started connecting, I knew that, that I wanted to serve the people. And um, this helped me articulate why I care, what my work is meant to do, um, who my work is for, and what is the impact and the change that I'm seeking to make uh, with my work. There's a quote on your website that, um dissolving fears within a leader and this idea of that versus a group dichotomy. Can you kind of mm -hmm. dissect that a little bit for us? Because I think that's a really powerful mm -hmm. kind of phrase. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the conductor versus ensemble dichotomy is the norm. It's what's familiar. And it's become, I think, the center of our working relationship slash dynamic. Um, and it's a problem not just with the music industry, but with all other industries, with the leader versus group, right? The leader's always right. We're trained that the leader's always right. The teacher's always right. I mean, we, we started from school saying that the, the teacher's always right, right? That the teacher has all the answers. And there's the assumption that conductors are always right. And uh, do, what it can, do what the conductor says and just do your job and everything will be fine. Um, and it's, it's interesting because I... I'm a conductor, but I've also played in orchestras as a cellist. So I know that conductors are trained to deal with um, disgruntled musicians. You know, that we're taught to expect disgruntled as a default and how to mitigate that with, you know, um, motivation, with 
how we run our rehearsals and how we use our time, all of that. And I also know that musicians are given advice and pointers about how to deal with conductors. And mostly the advice is, is ignore them, right? Um, you know, and don't talk back. <laughs> um, we're saying, we want to hear your ideas. We want to hear from you, but only if you agree with us and play our game or you will be punished. Um, and that does not bode well for what, you know, in the business industry, we're talking about psychological safety, about feeling safe to speak up, regardless of whether you disagree or agree, you know? And so over time, I think as musicians, we, uh, we get out of practice in thinking for ourselves musically, like, you know, the people who are sitting in the orchestra says, thinks, oh, the, con the conductor's going to tell me what to do. So I'm not going to really think about how to phrase this because, I mean, they do, I, I'm not saying that, that, that they don't think about how to phrase things, but they, there's a certain expectation from the information to come from the conductor. Mm -hmm. And the conductor also expects for them to be the all-knowing being, the person who has to disseminate that information. Yeah. And so, the, 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 so, 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 so we end up having a lack of collaboration, the lack of speaking up from the people who are in the group. And we don't have practice of having ideas for ourselves. We don't take risks in our playing and in our improvements in our organizations um, because we're just afraid. So you've, you've yeah. realized all of this. Yeah. You, you've thought a lot about it. You've thought a lot about the, the symptoms in, in your practice as a conductor with the groups that you work with what are what are some things mm -hmm. that you've done yeah. actively some active decisions changes that you've made in your practice as a conductor when working with orchestras to try to mitigate or fix some of these issues yeah i think one of the, the first things that i've had to do is to show vulnerability I've had to show that I do not have all the answers. I don't know all the solutions and I need their help. And I think one of the most important things that a leader can say is, I don't know and I screwed it up if it's your fault, right? And those are so powerful because it allows the group, whether they're students or employees or, you know, um, uh, that it allows them to see that you are a human being that is not perfect and it, it, it gives them the ability to, to say to themselves i can be vulnerable i can be not perfect and it's okay so i think being a leader i've really um forced myself at first i had to force myself to be the leader in showing vulnerability and doing that first then if, if, if i don't do that then the musicians are never going to feel safe to feel that way too and and then the next step that I've taken is to include the musicians as much as possible in crowdsourcing ideas for change. So um, I, um, and you know, I've only started thinking about this in the last seven months or so. So I've, and I feel like I have implemented um, ideas in the past, but not in a very like systematic way. So, um, and then of course COVID happened. So I was, I didn't really have a chance to like really fully implement the ideas. So I've been mostly writing about it, but in the times in which I have been able to implement, um, I have asked the musicians for uh, constant feedback in terms of what they want to play, uh, why they want to play it. 
And, um, and, and this is in the context of an academic institution. So actually there's a little more space, freedom for that to happen. Um, what they wanna play, how they wanna play, and also to give themselves the, um, the space to help each other. So one example is that um, at um, right before one of our recording sessions during COVID, I asked uh, my orchestra to spend two minutes with their music, picking up the music, going to somebody else in the room, who's not me, and telling them about a challenge or a problem that they've been having on the music and having the partner give them some advice about how they can overcome that challenge and it's a two-minute exercise you know and they just swapped you know one person told the other person about their challenge and then the other person gave some advice and then they did vice versa and and uh, my hope is to give them more agency and more empowerment in terms of that they actually have the solutions to solve the problems that they've had they do not have to wait for me to say oh you're having trouble with that rhythm there here are five solutions for you, right? But actually they have solutions themselves and to get that out of them is actually really hard. So um, I did this exercise, it only took two minutes um, to get them to just say like, oh, I can help that person. Maybe I can help myself the next time. And I don't have to wait until the rehearsal. And actually what it did was it made the, made it was right before a recording ses session. So it wasn't a rehearsal, but it made that recording session so much better like and i didn't even have to do anything and it's just because they were they were thinking about the, their challenges yeah. and they feel they felt empowered to overcome them and they also and also what it did was it didn't it, i didn't need to rehearse anything because they rehearsed it themselves in their minds um as they were having these conversations and so i actually didn't have to rehearse as much as if i didn't have them do that exercise I think you mentioned this and um, this kind of play, I'm going to kind of think about two things here together, but from a young age, you, you mentioned that we are taught about not making mistakes or being perfect or trying to be perfect and always striving for perfection and keep practicing and you'll get it eventually and all this stuff. Um, and it starts very young and then you go to conservatory and then you're in an ensemble and then you get tenure and then, you know, it's a huge problem. But this idea of constantly striving for perfection in a world that is inherently imperfect and will never be so can very much lead to mental health issues. And mm -hmm. I, I, I know that in our youth orchestra, we see so many young people just striving to be perfect and beating themselves up over making mistakes. And especially during COVID when we were doing recordings and they would send us a recording, they're like, it's not perfect. We're like, it's not going to be. But I can see it affecting young people's mental health. And so I wonder, what your take is on that and and why it kind of reinforces why this is so important um to not only our young people but our professional musicians as well but i wonder what maybe your experience or how you've seen this impact some young people's um enjoyment actually in yeah. the rehearsal yeah well i think perfectionism is um something that has traditionally prevented us from doing taking action doing things are in action because we are actually scared of just being bad, right? We're, we're afraid of the feeling of failing. So we avoid it. And I um, am coming to think more about this idea. It's not my idea, but um, there's this idea that um, perfection 
So our per perfectionism is actually a form of hiding and procrastination. Um, and we're hiding from not wanting to feel bad. We're procrastinating the feeling of feeling bad mm -hmm. uh, when we fail. So we avoid it at all costs and we don't share it because it's not ready. And so we delay sharing the thing, right? And I'm guilty of that too. And th th this is an idea um, that I think has really changed my mindset over time. I heard this, I think about a year ago. Um, it's, an, it's an idea um, that Seth Godin speaks a lot about. Um, you know, and I think that you, yeah, you're right, Richard, that the truth is that it's never going to be perfect. So why are we delaying? Why are we waiting? Why are we being inactive? Mm -hmm. And I think that we just are so over, overcome by the fear of failing. Mm -hmm. And so I think to address it is to say, what can we do about failure? How can we rethink failure? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and also just to think that, um, that aiming for outstanding performance is a great thing, but expecting human perfection is not. You can, you can strive to be outstanding and excellent, but you should not strive to be perfect because humans are not perfect. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating take on perfectionism that I really never considered before. And I have thought, though, about how there are some recordings that you hear, particularly live recordings, mm -hmm. where it'll just be an electrifying performance that's not technically perfect. And it's, yeah. it's better to listen to than a studio recording where everything is so perfectly polished. There's something about when people are not afraid to take a risk because they know that if something goes wrong, the audience in the hall is probably going to forget about it. And no one who wasn't there is ever going to know it happened. Mm -hmm. There's some, there's something special about a, a live performance where the orchestra is really encouraged to take risks and not be afraid if it's not all a hundred percent perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. And it's so counterintuitive to what we do in like the practice room and the rehearsal room, right? It was, it just, I feel like we don't practice taking the risks and we do, we wait to do it. You know, if we, if we even do it, we wait to do it in the concert space and it's too late. And so I've been thinking a lot about how do we encourage this risk taking? And, and I, you know, I, I'll share this one thought that I've been thinking a lot about is that you know we think of failure as single as black and white right you either succeeded or you failed and when we fail it's like bad 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 punishment punishment and we get you know like and what are we what what are we afraid of when we are making a mistake we're afraid of being embarrassed we're afraid of being rejected and we're afraid of losing our jobs you know uh, or, or losing our jobs or losing our place in the in the group of belonging like being shunned right and so, you know, so I think that we just don't want to make mistakes, but, you know, there's, there's a psychologist um, who talks about uh, that there are actually two kinds of failures. There um, is a praiseworthy failure and there is a blameworthy failure. And praiseworthy failures are failures that are result from experimentation and complexity. So things that you're trying to do to, to take risks um, and you just failed. As a result, um, blameworthy failures are because of incompetence or inattention. Like you just simply did not do 
your, you were not prepared for the rehearsal or something like, or you didn't practice, right? And those are very different, but she encourages us to, this is a psychologist called Amy Edmondson, and she encourages us to think about how many times do we treat the praiseworthy failures like they are blameworthy failures. Mm. And, and that is, I think, a really worthy idea to think about is how do we praise the failures that are praiseworthy? Right. And yeah, and, and ultimately encouraging that in the professional space is going to be a, a, when someone figures out the best way to do that, it's going to be a revolutionary event in our profession. Yeah, because it completely turns the table around yeah. and in, in giving, I think it's in giving the people who are scared to make mistakes or fail gives them the responsibility of aiming for failure in a weird way, like aiming to expand their their boundaries and for it to be okay to fail as a result of for sure. that yeah. expansion. So we've talked a lot about workplace satisfaction in the orchestral world. And so just asking you, what is the time that you have most enjoyed what you do, where you have felt the most satisfied with your work? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I enjoyed when um, the experiences where my work had a great impact on the people that I work with. When I'm able to make them happier at work or think about the music differently, to understand why they're playing what they're playing, it just makes the work more meaningful for them and it makes me feel good about my having helped them. Um, and the best times are, of course, when they tell me in person that they have how they have changed as a result of working with me you know whether it's you made me listen more or you made me think differently or um, i've never been so excited to play these like three pages of ace notes you know or or you know time went by really fast in the rehearsal that's a frequent comment for me um and so i think when i'm able to help people get into flow of their work and understand why they're working and um, to have, to, to just be happier, to be there, that I think is when I've enjoyed my work the most. I wrote down the question, how do you think these issues affect diversity in our field? And I think I, I have a, a, a small idea that has kind of popped into my head kind of throughout the conversation of this idea of not taking risks or not speaking up or not feeling safe to speak up in a space. Um, so I'm wondering kind of your take on that question, whether it comes to the repertoire we choose or who's in the orchestras or who's even going to school for this kind of thing. Um, I, this entire conversation has kind of made me think about this question very differently than I think when I wrote it, about how mm -hmm. this issue specifically affects the diversity that we see on stages and in our field. Right. Yeah. I, I think you're right that it boils down to people not being, feeling like the, that they're uh, able to speak up. And I think you can have a lot of diversity in your your organization, but if those people are not willing to, if, if sorry, if those people are not a feel, they don't feel safe to speak up, then it doesn't really help that much, you know. And sort of more a cosmetic thing. Um, and you know what you just said reminds me of um, a quote that I th think a lot about: um, that inclusion drives diversity, and not the other way around. Mm -hmm. So 
just because your group is diverse does not mean that you're being inclusive yeah. because some people may still not be able to speak up and you may not be giving them the space to speak up or the permission to speak up. Um, but if you include people, all kinds of people to share their ideas, to speak up, then the diversity comes as a result, you know, and that I think diversity comes not just in where people are from or the color of their skin, but it comes from diversity of thought, mm -hmm. diversity of experience, diversity of, um, of social backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And that is beyond color of skin, you know, or what country they're from. So I think of diversity as a bigger scope uh, within a larger scope mm -hmm. um, than I think what we're thinking, what, you know, we traditionally have been thinking yeah. about diversity in the last two years. So our podcast is called Orchestrating Change. So we always ask every guest at the end of every episode, what are some of your thoughts on how we orchestrate change? Yeah, I have um, some quick thoughts. Um, I think doing the hard things, going towards the fears, doing the thing that you've been procrastinating doing because you were scared. Um, that's, you know, the first thing, I think. And I think that every other point that I'm going to talk about is probably going to be hard. So um, it's accepting that change is hard. And we have to commit to failing and maybe not getting it right the first time. And so my first, I guess my first thing that I, I want to talk about is um, asking good questions, because I think that sometimes we work really hard to solve problems, but we don't solve the right problems. And so it's asking good questions with different perspectives, different people with different backgrounds, different worldviews, getting other people to help, help you, whether you are an, an individual or you are a, an organization, see your blind spots. Asking the, asking the questions to figure out what the, what the real problems are. Uh, second thing um, is uniting people through purpose and core values. That's something that I really believe in. I think that if you are, if, if we are clear about our personal and our organizational values and, and pur purpose, then we can attract and get the right people on the bus to go to where we want to go. Um, so I think this requires uh, a reform in rethinking our mission statements, how we use that, and how we um, reform our hiring practices to infuse values and purpose within that. Um, and uh, I think aligning individual purpose, what, pe what people's dreams and wishes and hopes are, what they want to change in the world, and the purpose of the organization. If, if, if we can find a way to align those uh, through conversations, through hiring practices, through thinking, re re rethinking missions, that is going to do so much for just the industry as a whole. The third thing is to motivate differently. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, we expect people to, or this, this, there's this idea that we expect people to not like their jobs. So we put carrots and sticks in place to motivate them, right? And, and I think that for the arts, we confuse, we get confused a little bit because we think that because we love what we do for a living, that we must love our jobs. But sometimes we can lose sight of why we're doing what we're doing. And we lose sight of why we, fall, why we fell in love with 
the artwork in the first place. So carrots and sticks do not work if someone has lost that sense of purpose. So the la my, my last thing is um, kind of what I've been talking about throughout this entire conversation is this practicing empathy. I think if we practice more empathy and realize that nobody sees the world the way that you do, we can start to see what we don't see and figure out our blind spots and then work more collaboratively and um, have the right conversations to discover the right problems and come up with the solutions together so we can actually make change happen. Fantastic. Well, that's yeah. a lot to digest, <laughs> yeah. a lot to leave our listeners yeah. with and us ourselves to, for us to think about that, going yeah, forward. But it, it's really, I think that's some, that's just, um, good leadership, I think. And I, it's something that I'm going to have to go back and listen to some of this again, because I think that it's really important for classical music and for moving us forward, but also just for people and leaders in the field of all fields. So, yeah. Tiffany Chang, it's been an absolute delight to speak with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for asking all the great questions and uh, for having me here, for ha having this conversation. I really hope that um, I've given you more than enough to think about. So at least, you know, one thing will stick and go somewhere. Tiffany Chang, conductor and creator of the blog, Conductor as CEO. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer and mixer is Nathan Maslick with video and audio editing by Shoreline Media. Thank you for listening and see you next time.